0: Hey everybody, it's David Plouffe. Welcome
1: to Campaign HQ. We're now in the middle of October, so uh, election day is is certainly looming. And we are gonna spend our uh, time today uh, and move our attention to North Carolina, a state uh, many of you uh, have got to know uh, through the years as it's been a battleground presidential state, um, you know, some really tight center races uh, and, an, and a really important state again. Uh, it's the only state with a Marquee Senate race that doesn't have a governor's race. Governors here are not elected uh, in presidential years, uh, so you may remember Governor Cooper won re-election in a tough race in 2020 uh, as Joe Biden, uh, you know, narrowly lost the state. So we're going to focus on the United States Senate race today: Sherry Beasley versus Bud. Uh, which is a really close tied race, about 45-45 roughly uh, in most of the public polling. So we're going to talk to Travis Brim, who is the campaign manager for Sherry Beasley. Travis is a longtime Democratic operative, spent last uh, cycle in New Mexico with Senator Lujan, has has spent time at some of the national party committees, uh, has – uh, spent a lot of time fundraising. That's kind of where his start in politics came from. So we're going to go deep into the Senate race, which doesn't get as much attention as, you know, uh, maybe the Arizona race or the Georgia race or the Pennsylvania race, in part because uh, Bud is kind of running a very secretive, closeted campaign uh, compared to some of these marquee folks like Walker and Oz and, and Masters. But it's a close race, and, and North Carolina has has historically been close. We're going to get an overview of the entire state from Will Doran from the News and Observer, who's uh, covered North Carolina politics uh, for a long time. And there's a lot of other things going on in in North Carolina. We're going to talk to Will about this U.S. Senate race, but we're also going to talk to him about the state legislative races. Uh, And North Carolina has partisan races for the Supreme Court. So the state Supreme Court now uh, is four to three Democratic. There's two races up this time. And so if the Republicans somehow were to shift power – there's going to be a lot of bad things that happen uh, in the coming years. So we're going to talk about those races uh, and what it could mean if the Republicans are able to uh, to switch control. So I'm really excited to go deep into a, a state that's super fascinating. It's got a lot of urban voters, big college campuses, huge rural population, uh, massive suburbs, and such a fascinating state uh, geographically. So it's, it's a state that I think is a great window into American politics in 2022. So uh, I hope you enjoy our deep dive into North Carolina. Will Doran, welcome to Campaign HQ. Thanks for having me. So, Will, as always, North Carolina, fascinating political state. Uh, I'm going to be talking to Travis Brim later in the episode, so let's start on the U.S. Senate race. It's not getting the type of attention that Georgia or Arizona uh, or even Ohio is getting, much less Pennsylvania, but... It's close. Uh, it's been close, it seems, the whole way in. Um, North Carolina, you know, is a competitive state. Uh, certainly Trump won it twice, but not by big margins. So, you know, Bud's considered, uh, I believe, a slight favorite still, but anything's possible. So talk to us about where you see that race and, and what you're going to be watching over the, the closing three weeks here.
2: Yeah, you're right. It, it has not been getting the same national attention as we've been seeing, you know, Pennsylvania and Georgia, some other states, Um you know obviously we hogged a lot of the attention in 2020 uh, with the, <laughs> yeah. the Tom Tillis Cunningham race and uh the Democratic Party you know really poured tons of money into that 2020 race to try to help out Cunningham and you know obviously he wasn't able to, to pull it off and there there has been money this year from the party for Sherry Beasley um there has not been as much which has been uh, you know a little uh, concerning to some of the folks here on the ground um but Like you said, this race is actually turning out to be, it seems a lot closer than people thought it was going to be. Um, you know, maybe six, eight months ago, people thought that Ted Budd was just, you know, in a position to not necessarily run away with it, but probably, you know, be a fairly safe bet to win. But right now, you know, the polling that we've seen has it pretty much at a tie. Um, Right. And, you know, we've been seeing a lot of surrogates from the white house coming in, you know, in the past month or so trying to, you know, turn out voters and, it, it does seem like there is an increased amount of attention that wasn't here, you know, this summer. Right.
1: So knowing North Carolina a little bit, you know it better. But, you know, my sense would be, you know, most of the, the polling average, I think, is like, you know, 45, 44 or something. So it's not 100 percent of the vote that's allocated. So you've got some people hanging out. Some of those won't vote, but you also have some people not sure they're going to vote. And they they probably are um, center, center right, you know, right. Uh, but in this election year, where you've got abortion as a big issue, you've got democracy. I'm, I'm just curious how, how sort of, and, and you're watching the campaigns. I assume a lot of their activity now, of course, is all is focused on turnout. But they are still trying to convert some of these undecided. So, uh, what's your view of that? Um, so, so I get you know, Bud's got the easier. Ch- Uh, I think, job there just because they probably do lean a little more right uh, than left, certainly. But in this election cycle, a lot of them are suburban vote uh, where, you know, Democrats might uh, even over form 20. So kind of what's your sense of what's left out there?
2: That is a really interesting question because Mm -hmm. just recently here in North Carolina, unaffiliated voters overtook both Democrats and Republicans Mm -hmm. for the biggest block of voters statewide. And You're exactly right. Um, Those unaffiliated voters tend to be kind of center right people and specifically people who are more socially moderate, but, you know, fiscally, you know, Mm -hmm. they like tax cuts, you know, they're, they're homeowners in the suburbs and, you know, they, they like things that are, you know, good for the stock market, but they're also not really, you know, on the extreme, right. As far as, you know, social issues go. And so with that group of people, you know, really kind of, and obviously that doesn't describe every single unaffiliated voter in the state. But that's kind of the the stereotypical, the average unaffiliated voter you have. And with that group now being the the biggest group you have, it is kind of that push and pull with like, okay, you know, they, they might really like stuff that they're hearing from from both candidates. You know, they mm-hmm. might appreciate some of, you know, what Bud is saying about inflation. And they also might be a little bit worried about what the Republicans are saying about abortion. And so right. it really is just a question of which of those messages is going to have a bigger effect. And one thing that I've, I've noticed is, you know, a lot of times in these races, you know, obviously the candidates will, you know, go kind of to the polls to win the primary, uh, and, you know, really appeal to the base in the primary, but then try to, you know, like run back to the middle for the general election here. We haven't seen as much of that from the bud camp as I mm-hmm. maybe be suspected. I mean, he had a, a rally in Wilmington with former president Trump just a few weeks ago. Um, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene has been to the stage, that that wasn't specifically for a, a, a Ted Budd event, but you know, the the GOP has been inviting her in recently, right. that was just a couple weeks ago. Uh, she came and had a, a fundraiser here near Raleigh where I am. And so, you know, there hasn't been as much of a concerted effort to really, you know, stay away from that, you know, really kind of the far right Trumpy side of the party. It's It's been more of kind of an embrace of that. Right. So,
1: you know, to the extent that I'm sure it is, that's a strategic calculation. They believe they can kind of turn out their way to victory on the bud side. I'm curious, just you know, you've covered North Carolina politics for a long time. So all sorts of different campaigns, which means you have all sort of different candidates and, and approaches and strategies Bud seems to be, though, on the extreme end of really not interested in engaging very much <laughs> with with journalists. Uh, what's that like to cover a race where, you know, if that's true, by the way, so from afar, it seems like, and, and he's not the only one in the cycle. I think we see uh, right now, and, and this is not a partisan observation, I think it's just a true observation, you see more Republican candidates who are sort of comfortable not really engaging with the media as much as traditionally we've seen candidates do.
2: Yeah, I was at the uh, the state GOP convention last summer of 21, uh, when Trump endorsed him there and he was very happy to speak with the media then. Mm-hmm. And there were, you know, all of the national media was there, uh, because, you know, people kind of knew that this endorsement was probably going to come from Trump. Um, he was very happy then. And his campaign has been pretty happy to talk to reporters, but mm-hmm. they, there's also kind of, I think, been an effort to, to not have the candidate himself in front of too many cameras. Um, and, uh, you know, we, they, uh, both Bud and Beasley had a, they had a debate recently and, you know neither of them is really a, a barnstorming speaker um mm-hmm. you know they're good at you know small crowds getting out shaking hands but you know i you know neither of them is going to uh you know blow people away as like a, a an amazing orator um and you know that's uh maybe that's part of the reason why we also haven't seen as much of the national attention on this race i don't i don't want to say that they're boring i don't want to use that word right um, but right. it 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 also is. But not just hasn't bombastic. Had, you know,
1: yes. Right. We yeah.
2: haven't had the scandals either that you've seen in other states that, you know, make some races uh, fun. So you
1: mentioned Bud's campaigns uh, willing to speak to to you and other members of the press. So I'm curious, obviously they wouldn't do this on the record, but when they're having sort of off-the-record discussions with you about where the race stands, are you sensing confidence from them? Are they concerned? Kind of w- You know, generally you can divine where campaigns think the race is when they're willing, you know, over a cup of coffee or a beer uh, to talk off the record maybe uh, about where the race stands.
2: I I think the Republicans still probably see North Carolina as, you know, their state to lose. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and I I think that, you know, is probably fair. Like I said, you know, the polling shows that this is basically a tie. But you go back to other recent statewide races, you know, in 2016 – you know, the polling showed basically a tie between Clinton and Trump, and Trump ended up winning by three or four points. Um, you know, the polling, uh, you know, probably favored Biden slightly yeah. in 2020, and he lost by about one percentage point. It was a very close race. Um, so, you know, typically, you know, when, when you see those polls basically about tied, I think Republicans usually look at that and see that as a good sign for them. And, you know, I, I think Democrats probably know that too, even though they might be a little bit a little bit less willing to uh, to say that.
1: No, I mean, North Carolina is a fascinating state. It's it's obviously deeply competitive, but basically, Democrats have to have a lot of things to go right to get to 50. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I remember back in 12, you know, in, in Obama's reelection, you know, we targeted North Carolina ferociously for a long time, but we pulled back in the last few weeks, just we didn't see a path to 50. We saw a path to like 48 and a half, but, you know, that didn't get the job done. And so- I think that's going to be the challenge for for Sherry Beasley. Now, I'm I'm curious. She is obviously a known quantity. She's run statewide. She narrowly lost uh, her judicial race in 2020 by, I think, under 1,000 votes or something super close. So what's your sense? uh, Is her um, familiarity with voters helpful um, this time? Uh, is, Is it not because people are looking for fundamental change? I'm just curious if you have an observation as you talk to voters around the state.
2: She certainly does benefit from having run that statewide race just two years ago. Um, I, you know, I think one thing that, you know, has kind of uh, hurt butt a little bit is, you know, he's a, he's a house member um, has only been in the house for a couple of terms and his district is kind of from a, a rural part of the state, you know, without a ton of huge media markets. So he's not a huge, you know, statewide figure in that regard. Now, obviously, you know, getting the president's endorsement for this race has, really helped on that regard. Right. Um, but you know, Beasley, obviously, you know, having been on the ballot statewide before you can't discount that. Um, and you know, I, I should note too, I mean, I don't have to tell you this, but you, you, know, your listeners, obviously, you know, president Obama won North Carolina in 2008. Um, you know, I, I think it was the closest state in the country in both 2008 and 2012. <laughs> um, it's been very close in 2016 and 2020 as well. Um, you know, but one thing that North Carolina really hasn't had except from you know, when Obama was on the ballot was a black candidate running statewide right at the and top. I think that that yeah. is something that a lot of Democrats are, you know, really encouraged about this year with uh, Sherry Beasley being on the ballot that they said, okay, like, you know, Barack Obama was, you know, in recent history, the only Democrat other than Governor Roy Cooper right. really to be able to win a big prominent race statewide. And he did that in large part by turning out a lot of black voters in, especially in the Eastern part of the state that didn't really turn out for Hillary Clinton and turn out a little bit more for Joe Biden. Um, and so I think people are hoping that, you know, a, a lot of those voters will see Sherry Beasley on the ballot and will be inspired to come to the polls. So, you know, where you have, you know, Ted Budd hoping to, you know, increase turnout among, you know, his base here, I think Democrats are also really excited for, you know, Beasley's prospects too. And, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, a, <laughs> a rising tide right. lifts all ships. And you know, and those are a Democrats lot of in.
1: rural, small town, you know, African-American voters, right, uh, outside of the major urban areas. Um, yeah, we have yeah. A,
2: a huge rural population here yeah. in North Carolina. And, you know, a lot of times when people hear rural, they just think white. Um, but that's right. really not the case. Right. So uh, let's move from
1: the Senate race to the U.S. House. You have a uh, what's considered by, you know, House prognosticators nationally as as one of the important toss-up races. I think it's the 13th District Uh, right? Newly drawn district, Uh, former Obama colleague of mine, State Senator Wiley Nichols, the Democratic candidate. Now, what's going on in that race as you see it? And and do you think that will closely track the Senate race in terms of of outcome? Do you think there'll be some separation?
2: All of our races seem so nationalized these days that I have to imagine it will really closely track. Um, And yeah, you're right. That is, we're a toss-up state. That's a toss-up district. I imagine Whatever the margin is in the Senate race, it's not going to be far off in this race. Um, and that's the district I live in. So I've been seeing a ton of ads <laughs> every time I watch TV or, you know, pick up my mail. Um, yeah, you've got, um, you know, Wiley Nicol, Democratic state senator running against uh, Bo Hines, who again uh, won President Trump's endorsement. Uh, they're both younger. Um, Hines is still in his 20s. Um, and, you know, it, it's, you know, just it honestly has turned into a really chippy race. A lot, a lot of dirty ads flying on, on both sides, um, which I think tells you, you know, how important, you know, both sides see this as, um, you know, people are resorting to all sorts of tactics to, uh, to try to do anything to be able to win it. And that is going to be a, a really, really competitive race. Um, Heinz is at a little bit of a disadvantage there because he, he's not really a, a known quantity. He's, mm-hmm. you know, He's fresh out of law school. Um, he's not from this area. He only recently moved to the district. And, you know, uh, but he won on the strength of having, you know, President Trump's endorsement. Um, Wiley Nickel, you know, is a state senator. That doesn't make him a household name by, right. you know, any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I think he actually did get helped out a little bit um, during the pandemic. He was on the states. Uh, he was actually the only Democrat on the unemployment committee. In the state legislature. And so he was kind of like the the voice of the party on pushing for, you know, better benefits that they wanted and things like that. So I think, you know, anyone who who lost their job during COVID and was following the news about unemployment probably saw his name a lot, um, you know, trying to fight for, for higher benefits for them. So that might, you know, I don't know if that's going to change a whole lot of minds, but in a race that might only get decided by, you know, one percentage point or so, that might right. be the the factor that swings it.
1: A few hundred people. Well, for for listeners out there who have their house scorecards at home, this will be a a race to follow on election night. Um, uh, If Democrats are able to win it, um, you know maybe that means they hold the House, or or even if they don't, it means the Republican margins narrow. Like it's just a a really key race. Any other House races
2: down there that that strike you as interesting that could surprise people in terms of the outcome? U.S. House races. There is one that I think people should pay more attention to. Um, in the northeastern part of the state, it's been held by Representative G.K. Butterfield for a very long time. Uh, he's a Democrat, former head of the Congressional Black Caucus, a uh, very prominent member uh, you know, in state politics for a long time. And he resigned, um, actually, after the most recent round of redistricting. Uh, the legislature drew him a very unfavorable district. Um, and so he went ahead and said, OK, well, there's no way I can win this. So I'm just going to resign. I'm in my 70s. <laughs> you know, I need to go see my grandkids. Right. Um, that district actually got redrawn. The, those maps were ruled unconstitutional. That district was redrawn to be much more competitive. Um, uh, and now there's no incumbent running in it. Uh, you have uh, former state senator Don Davis, who's running as the Democratic candidate. Mm-hmm. And then on the Republican side, you have Sandy Smith, um, a Republican who is just um, really just the the far, far right, um, you know, conspiracy theory, you know, when she she lost to GK Butterfield in 2020 and blamed the loss on uh, Dominion voting machines, which mm-hmm. for the record don't actually exist in North Carolina. There we go. We've uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. never used them, but uh, that's what she was telling voters that that was the reason why she lost these these non-existent voting machines. Um, so she's running again. She's, you know, has really, uh, you know, riled up the, the Republican base there and Honestly, has a decent shot of winning um, if if the Republican Party has a has a decent wave this year. Um, you know, the, the state or the the seat still leans Democratic, but right, not by a ton. Right, so that's considered lean Democrat. And which number is that? That is – I believe that's District 1. They change district up the one. numbers every couple okay. of years, so I always northeast corner, northeast
1: corner, former buffalo State. Northeast corner of the
2: state. I believe it's District Okay. One.
1: And so if – if yeah, so that would be a seat if the Republicans win it, then they have probably somehow managed to win the House by 20, 30, 40 seats, right? It's going to be – so So North Carolina's key. So you have um, partisan races for the state Supreme Court in North Carolina. The court, I believe right now, is a Democratic majority four to three. You have two races – This time, Uh, obviously, if the Republicans were to regain or were to gain control, that would have massive consequences, right, on a whole set of issues um, over the coming years. So, just talk about those races, the state supreme court generally. Um, This is obviously where Sherry Beasley, uh, you know, came from, lost very narrowly in in twenty twenty. So talk about those races, which, you know, again, they get zero national attention, but I assume in North Carolina both get a lot of attention and still probably aren't fully appreciated for the impact they're going to have on people in the state.
2: Yeah, actually, a large part of my job is covering the the state courts because mm-hmm. we are <laughs> such a politically contentious state. Uh, we have a lot of political lawsuits happening and the Supreme Court really ends up being the arbiter on plenty of things, whether it's gerrymandering or. Voter ID. Uh, we have a huge case about education funding right now. Whether or not the legislature needs to spend you know hundreds of millions of dollars more on the the public schools here, um, and you know these are all things that the the Supreme Court has been deciding in recent years. So it's it's huge. And you know you, you would love to say that you know no judges aren't political. You know they they rule based on the law. But when you have you know your judges elected in partisan political elections, that's you know. Politics comes into play. Uh, you yeah. can't expect there to, to not be politics behind some of these decisions in these political cases. And so yes, you're right. We have a four to three Democratic majority right now, uh, but there's two, two Democratic seats that are up for election. So if Republicans win even just one of those, then they're going to retake the majority. And the really why this is particularly key is, you know the, the Republicans could also take a super majority at the state legislature. This year, it's it's certainly not guaranteed, um, but there is a possibility of that happening. And for the past few years, you know, Democratic Governor Roy Cooper has been able to block right. the legislature from passing some of kind of the more what he would call extreme bills that they want on, you know, um, changes to election laws and things like that. But obviously, if they take that supermajority, then he won't be able to veto anything anymore. And then if they also have a Republican Supreme Court at the same time, um, then the, the thought is that, you know, they, they could essentially, you know, pass virtually whatever they want, whether it's, you know, from new abortion restrictions, new voting rights laws, uh, whatever. And so that, that has kind of been the, the Democratic messaging on those state Supreme Court races is like, hey, you know, <laughs> yes, we have a Democratic governor, but if, you know, Democrats don't you know stop the the GOP from a supermajority at the legislature? Our Democratic governor is basically powerless to stop the GOP from doing this unless we hold the Supreme Court. So I don't know if voters are necessarily connecting with that message. It's it's a little bit of a tough sell uh, to get people to care about judicial races, uh, but it is something that really affects people's lives. And has there been much polling on those races at all? Not a ton. Um, yeah. I've talked to some uh, to some consultants in those races, and they s- they say that in general. Voters are a little bit more conservative for judicial races than they are for statewide races. So they say, you know, OK, well, if, you know, Beasley Butt is tied, then that's probably not a good sign for the Democrats on the state Supreme Court. They're going to need, you know, an extra boost, an extra help um, to uh, to hold on to the med- the majority there. Um, and actually, I, I talked to someone and he told me that. And then the next day I saw the ACLU was dropping like a million dollars in ads on the state Supreme Court races. So right. maybe that was that extra boost uh, that they yeah. needed or maybe not. Um, you know, you often see huge, huge amounts of spending in these judicial races, usually from national groups. Right. Well, I do think,
1: you know, with voting rights and abortion and also sort of, and, and sort of, you know, uh, the judicial system more in the news, maybe that helps counteract that a little bit for Democrats. We'll see. But but uh, and and so so vote, so folks should assume that both of those races will also be super close. Uh, yes. In all likelihood, <laughs> yeah.
2: Like so, you said, when uh, when Sherry Beasley was running for, for chief justice of the Supreme Court in 2020, she lost by 400 votes. Oh, Was it 400? Yeah, yeah, yeah there yeah 400 votes statewide. I mean, out of millions, um, it, it was just an incredibly close race, and so. Yes, I, I would imagine that these are also going to be really close, and, and you're you're exactly right. Um, the you know the the main messaging from the the Democrats is like, look, this you know this could be our you know only chance at stopping further abortion restrictions from right. being passed into law. Uh, right. Particularly
1: if the Republicans win a supermajority. Yeah.
2: Exactly.
1: Um, they have strong majorities now. Uh, it would take some. Uh, you know, good outcomes. But again, we don't know if there's going to be a tilt yet for one party or the other. That's the, you know, I, I think these things can be late breaking. Um, and I'm Absolutely. curious, uh, just atmospherically, uh, what are, what's happening with gas prices in North Carolina? they starting to tick back up. They're holding steady. What's the trajectory?
2: They're up slightly. I don't have uh, the latest data in front yeah. of me, um, but my bank account would tell you that they have gone down a lot and, are, yeah. you know, slightly up. Um, so that that's kind of just my, you know, as a as a person, as a voter, yes, that's, that's my a, kind of general Well, thing. we all
1: notice it, right? So, you know, yeah. I, I think if, there, if those were to go up quite a bit over the next three weeks, that would be super problematic for, for Democrats, for sure. So uh, just one question, uh, Will, if I could, about 2024, you know, the parlor games in D.C. around the presidential race, you know, really never stop. <laughs> you know, they're, they're intensifying, even though we have the 22 election right in front of us. Uh, so in in scenarios where people say, well, if Biden doesn't run, uh, you know, Governor Roy Cooper would seem to be someone who w- would be a, a potential candidate. Uh, I'm sure the Cooper uh, team is very careful not to get ahead of their skis here. But are you picking up anything in terms of planning? Do you think it's likely if it's an open seat that he may seriously consider running? What What's your view of, of that?
2: Well, you're absolutely right that they – that his people do not want to talk about this at all. Yes. <laughs> but he's term limited. He can't run again. Um, you know, we will have a a Senate seat open in 2026. So, you know, it's possible that he might have his eye on that. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, his name does keep popping up. You know, you, you see, uh, you know, a few democratic governors, I think, uh, Jared Polis is usually Mm -hmm. mentioned in these kind of lists, but, you know, obviously, you know, Rick Cooper is currently the president of the democratic governors association You know, he clearly has, you know, respect from, you know, some of the national politicians. And also, you know, he's been able to pull off, you know, some some big wins in in North Carolina in years when other Democrats have not been able to do that. Um, And, you know, he's done it in large part by being seen as kind of, um, uh, you know, a bit more moderate, I would say, than the than maybe the national democratic party. Um, and you know, that has, that's helped him in some of the more rural areas of the state, you know, people say, well, you know, those Democrats up in DC are crazy, but right. I like Roy Cooper. He's got a solid head on his shoulders. So, you know, I'm going to vote for, you know, Republicans in Congress, but Cooper for governor, um, that that's kind of been his brand. Um, but you know, he's also taken on some kind of more progressive you know, challenges, the whole whole scandal over hb2 if people remember that the so-called bathroom bill i mean that's Mm -hmm. really what he ran on to become governor in the first place um so even though you know he kind of has this you know reputation as a a moderate he's also you know has those kind of chops to to fight on some of the more you know progressive um, i don't want to say culture war issues but
1: well but if he finds himself in the democratic primary for president you 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 know that the electoral strength he has in terms of being seen as a moderate can unfortunately be penalized by that process right so he's got to have some things to to appeal to enough liberals so so last thing just um you know uh, listeners will be you know watching television on election night they'll be refreshing uh you know uh the news and observers website the New York Times as 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 votes come in and obviously it'll be like this percentage of the vote, but maps start to get filled in. So just help people as you kind of go West, like Asheville in the mountains to, you know, Wilmington and the outer banks to the, to the ocean, kind of what people should be wa- watching out for, uh, you know, as maps fill in.
2: Sure. Well, you know, it's going to look a lot like national maps where you're going to see a lot of red with little islands of blue. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, we are a very rural state here, so you know there are there are people in those rural areas, but there's a whole lot more people, you know, in the in the urban areas. So you're you're going to see some little pockets in the mountains, like Asheville and Boone, which are both college towns. Um, obviously, Charlotte is going to be a a deep deep blue, um, but all of the areas around that, you know, probably um, you know much more red. And I, I think you know, and then obviously you get to Greensboro, Raleigh, Durham. Those will you know, I'll be blue. The areas in between will all be red. But I think really what people are going to be looking for is kind of the the mid-sized suburban areas, places mm-hmm. like Wilmington out on the coast or places right. like the, the counties just outside of Raleigh and Charlotte. And, you know, areas that are suburban, really fast growing, but not massive. And, you know, if, you know, if those are going, you know, 20 points for the Republicans, it's probably not going to be a great night for the Democrats, but right. if, you know, if Republicans are only winning those by, you know, 12 or 15 points, those, uh, you know, kind of, uh, uh, uh former Democratic, uh, operative here, Mack McCorkle, told me those are called the country-politan uh, <laughs> counties, <laughs> it's they're, a great they're not quite metropolitan, yeah. but not quite country, uh, just, you know, the, the counties are right outside the big urban areas. Um, that's really, I think where all eyes are going to be, um, places like Union County, Johnston County, New Hanover County, um, that I think that's really where to look and see, you know, if Democrats are keeping that, I don't think they're going to win any of the, or lose any of those counties by single digits. But if, you know, they're keeping it to the low double digits, that's probably a good sign for them
1: That's Democrats. huge. All right, So folks have their guide for election night when they zoom in in North Carolina and start clicking on counties. Uh, look at at those counties uh, east and central, um, where they need to keep those margins down. Well, Will, thank you for your time. Great, uh, great overview of what's going on in North Carolina uh, in 22. I, I know you have a busy few weeks ahead of you, so thanks for spending some time with us.
2: Thank you for having me on. Uh, really appreciate doing it.
1: Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky Travis Brim, welcome to Campaign HQ. Um, thank you, David. Thank you for having me on. Well, listen, you've uh, you've been part of a lot of uh, key races, close races. Now you're managing another one. I'll just give you an opportunity about to talk about where you see the race. I mean, you know, public polling has it very close, both uh, you and your opponent in the mid-40s. But, uh, you know, just take the podium and tell us kind of where you see the race a few weeks out.
3: No, yeah. Um, You know, I think we're all very excited about where the race is. Uh, We're very proud uh, to be here in this place. Um, You know, North Carolina is a challenging state, uh, no matter what sort of environment or election season you're running in. I I know you know that all too well. Um, And so I I, I think uh, I'm very glad that people are sort of starting to wake up to uh, the competitive race we've been running here, but also sort of the unique uh, and uniquely qualified and credentialed candidate that we have running down here. Um, look, we feel like we can go get this thing. Um, And we're grateful for the folks that have helped us get this far uh, in terms of fundraising and support on the ground. And um, we are gonna keep our foot on the gas. Um, We are now obviously in the sort of turnout GOTV season. Um, We had a couple of folks with us here this weekend, Senator Booker and Senator Ossoff. Um, And so look, we are very focused on making sure that we have uh, every dollar we uh, can raise focused on paid communication, but also on voter turnout. Um, But, you know, we really believe if we can get the message out um, on the doors and on TV and radio and everything in between, we're going to be we're going to be making this thing competitive all the way through.
1: So, Travis, what's interesting about this, you know, the public polling, um, you know, has you, uh, you know, let's say 43 to 45 buds around the same. Right. And so. Uh, I'll get the turnout in a minute. Um, now, your own research may show something quite different, but that's still a lot of people who are not stating a preference in polling. Right. So when you look at those voters uh, who are either undecided, maybe they're not going to vote at all. What's their profile, as best as you can tell the people who are not yet uh, firmly choosing a candidate?
3: Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, and also, North Carolina, again, something that folks may not know, uh, the voter registration here is really unique. I think people are waiting for North Carolina to completely turn blue, and the actual, actually the largest block of uh, voters in the state are, are unaffiliated voters or independents right. to anybody outside of the state. Um, and so it's a, it's a state with a longstanding sort of purple streak uh, and independent values. Um, And the group of folks that you see um, in that sort of undecided, uh, depending on which poll you're looking at, um, anywhere from about 8 to 12 percent, they typically are people who truly, truly identify as independent. Uh, But I think even more so, um, even some sort of moderate to conservative leading folks. These are Republicans Mm -hmm. that like don't really consider themselves a sect of the Trump wing of their party. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a couple of different pieces that really move those voters. Um, A huge chunk of that group of voters is women. Mm-hmm. Um, so choice, uh, as I'm sure you're hearing from a lot of folks around the country is a, is a big, big mover for these people. Um, but, but also really an economic message. Um, you know, we don't have the luxury of running away from the economy, um, even though our, our opponents are really wanting to make the races solely about that. Um, and so those two issues I think are really what's driving folks. Right.
1: Well, that's very helpful. I, it's always good to remind people that when you see a race, uh, whether it's Senate, governor, house, presidential you know that's tied. Let's say forty-five, forty-five. You know that is great. You'd rather be there than losing by ten. But what matters is hundred percent of the vote comes in. And sometimes in a race, I've certainly been part of them, <laughs> where you know you just don't see your way to fifty. And it sounds like you see your way to fifty based on. Um, who those undecideds are. Now, let's talk about turnout, uh, where a lot of your focus is right now. Republicans have had strong turnout in North Carolina and in many places the last three election cycles. You know, Democrats obviously had historic turnout in 18, did what we need to do in 20. Anything you're seeing of note in terms of turnout? And I'd ask you to talk about both Republican and Democratic turnout, uh, because obviously we have to, you know, it's not just, but it's not shooting free throws, right? (laughs) You know, you got the other side on the court. So let's talk about what you're seeing in
3: terms of Republicans too. Yeah, look, I mean, there's no question um, in a midterm election cycle, especially one where we uh, not only have control of the White House, but all three chambers, um, that it was an uphill climb for Democrats. Um, You know, the Dobbs decision, uh, not that I wouldn't trade it uh, for the lack of enthusiasm, but we are certainly trying to capitalize on the enthusiasm that it's provided. Um, And so I think. I mean, to be honest, I, I think we actually um, do have a tool to sort of galvanize not just our base, um, but really independent and moderate-leaning Republicans in a way that I don't know that our opponent does. Um, you know, you know, national reporters have used the word "sleepy" uh, to identify our race a few different times. I mean, I can tell you from my candidate and my staff, right. <laughs> I don't know that they would say it's sleepy, but. Um, I I do think it it has a lot to do with sort of the way our opponent has run his race. Um, You know, he has not really been available to the press, um, but he's also not really been in Washington. There was even a story that came out in the Washington Post just this morning um, that shows he's missed about 4.3% of his votes this election cycle, Mm. which is remarkably high for folks at home who don't know. Um, It's usually in the 1% to 2% range. Um, And so I I think there's a lot for folks to get excited about uh, in terms of, uh, the candidate we we have, the race we've been running, um, Sherry Beasley is the first African-American woman to serve as Chief Justice of the North, North Carolina Supreme Court. Um, she's the first black woman to be a major party nominee here. Um, but she's also spent her career in public service to the state. Um, she's won two statewide races already, um, lost her last race even in 2020 by 401 votes. Uh, outperforming the Senate uh, nominee at the time and, and President Biden. So I think we have a lot uh, to galvanize voters around in terms of our message, but also the sort of unique candidate that we're running in a, what is otherwise a very difficult environment.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you're right. I mean, we'd all trade uh, trade the Dobbs decision, uh, even if it meant we'd have a bad election. But So that's been one uh, reason that you're seeing increased enthusiasm. Obviously, Sherry Beasley herself, as you mentioned, has been – a strong candidate who, uh, you know, brings a lot of enthusiasm. Let's just talk about North Carolina geographically. I, I, I think you're right. Listen, going back in 08, uh, in the first Obama campaign that we won narrowly, I think there's a view that, hey, North Carolina, Virginia, now we're heading blue, blue, blue. Uh, you know, Virginia definitely had more of a trajectory there. North Carolina has been super close uh, and will be again. So just talk about geographically kind of what you guys need to do from west to east if you could.
3: Yeah, um, and my joke that I like to tell is that uh, North Carolina is not really a trending; it's just perennially stubborn. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, it, look, it's it's vastly different, right? Um, and I think uh, there's also a piece of this election, and one of the things we're trying to figure out is um, the pandemic caused a lot of of movement. Um, so there's also a lot of influx people coming into the state, which yeah. is great. Um, everybody else is figuring out how great North Carolina is. Um, but I, again, going back to sort of the chief justices race last election cycle. Um, The thing that is unique, and my home state is Mississippi, Um, so I grew up, uh, although a smaller state, uh, very similar, the unique thing about North Carolina, in my opinion, one, people don't think of it as a rural place, but it is an Mm -hmm. incredibly rural state. Mm -hmm. Um, It also has a very large rural African-American population, which Mm -hmm. is another unique component. Um, And if you were to look at uh, a heat map, uh, so to speak, of how she performed in her 2020 Chief Justice race... Um, Sort of the secret sauce there is, yes, she overperformed in some of the precincts in the major urban areas like Charlotte and Mecklenburg County Mm -hmm. and uh, Raleigh and Wake County, but also in the eastern portion of the state where there is a large concentration of rural black voters. Um, And so this goes back to sort of how we've been approaching the campaign, but we're trying to make sure that we are everywhere, which uh, is quite the burden on the staff and team and candidate. but look, we are not leaving anything for granted. Um, there's a hundred counties here. Um, we've been to all 100 counties. A lot of them we've been to more than once. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to places like the western part of the state that demographically are, you know, a lot of white voters. Uh, frankly, right. a lot of white non-college educated voters. Um, but we were just, uh, earlier this past week, about a week ago, we were in Nashville. We did a, a three-day swing out west. Um, as a part of the sort of closing gap here, we're doing forums around the state. Um, This is a little bit um, campaign nerdy, but North Carolina is a complicated place to communicate. Um, There are nine media markets, so we are making sure we are getting to some of the smaller markets that don't necessarily always get the love in paid communications. Um, And so, you know, uh, the western part of the state obviously is about 8% of the vote, uh, but we're still making sure that we spend time out there to go after every vote.
1: Right, just to keep those margins down in counties where you're going to lose. And how is Bud handling the fact that you know you talked about the undecideds and a chunk of them are Republican or Republican leaning independents um, who aren't full on MAGA. So how's he how's he uh, straddling needing to drive up MAGA turnout with the fact that some of these undecideds uh, you know are open to Sherry Beasley because uh, in part you know abortion's part of it I'm sure, but you know not not on the MAGA train.
3: No, that's that's right. And I, I think you have sort of a tale of two candidates here, um, which obviously the burden falls on our campaign to uh, make sure we are appropriately defining him. Uh, but I, I briefly mentioned that, you know, he's not really been around. Um, I think that's been a huge part of their strategy um, and the cycle of celebrity candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ted Budd may not seem as offensive as a Dr. Oz or a J.D. Mm-hmm. Vance or a Herschel Walker. Right. Um, But I think he ought to scare scare voters, especially moderate voters and and non-MAGA sort of Republicans even more um, because he's been in Congress for six years. Um, He is a true believer, so to speak. Um, You know, he is a part of the House Freedom Caucus. He voted to overturn the 2020 election. Right. Um, President Trump was uh, just in state uh, a couple of weeks ago in in Wilmington uh, campaigning on his behalf. Um, And it's really solely for him. Another thing that gets lost in the mix is North Carolina is the only uh, major state that also doesn't have an accompanying gubernatorial race. Right, right. Um, So we are alone statewide at the top of the ticket. Um, And then, look, uh, Senator Kennedy, who just had a great ad (laughs) down in Louisiana, um, was uh, campaigning uh, with him and Donald Trump Jr. was here this week as well this past week as well. So look this is a guy who's really when he is campaigning is trying to embrace that segment of his party and is otherwise kind of not around. Um, right. And I think that it's on you know and credit to my communications team, uh, it's really been our job to make sure that people are aware of the votes that he's taken, aware of how out of step uh, he is with the average voter here in North Carolina and how extreme he is on a lot of these on a lot of these issues.
1: So I'm curious, um, you know, you mentioned some of the other Senate candidates. They're all getting attacked on a bunch of issues, but, but crime is front and center. Um, you guys are also taking some of that as well. Uh, how are you guys managing? That? And obviously, Sherry Beasley has a history, uh, you know, in our legal system as, as, as chief justice. Uh, how are you guys parrying those attacks?
3: Yeah, and look, we uh, we've been we've been fending them off uh, since about April. Um, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. right. Um, and so, look, I think there's the, the the real story here is like Sherry Beasley is the only candidate um, in this race who has spent her her career and her public service helping keep North Carolinians safe. Look, right. this is a woman who started as a public defender, district court judge, appellate court judge, then a justice, and then chief justice. I mean, if you name it, she's done it in our judicial system, and I think that's a, a rare piece and. Of course, they have come and tried to distort uh, this woman's distinguished record, um, but we've—you know—they're just telling lies essentially about her, her record, and her career in public service. So much so that—and I know you probably know this—but it's it's quite hard to get an ad taken down off the air. But we were able to successfully yeah. get um, one of the NRSC's ad ads uh, taken off the air. But um, they tried to come for us on crime um, in April. Actually, still inside of our primary, we were the first challenger race in the country to get attacked by the NRSC. Um, and we were able to film, fend them off. Um, you know, we have a lot of support from law enforcement and sheriffs around the around the state, but also judges on both sides of the aisle. Um, it is, you do have to run, uh, it is a partisan office here in the state. Um, and so she's really been able to draw down on a long career of support uh, from both law enforcement, but also other judges, no matter their party affiliation, to sort of rebut these attacks. And one of the interesting things um, that we found in our polling is after getting the nrc spent seven million dollars almost seven million dollars attacking her solely on crime uh from april through july 4th Uh, and we polled after we got clear of those attacks we actually came out stronger um two points stronger after those attacks came through and so i think there was an element of you know frankly the average voter in north carolina calling a little bit of bs um, on these sorts of attacks Um, it's hard to define someone who is so clearly Um, spent their career being nonpartisan in nature and uh, working to uphold the constitution uh, that way. Right.
1: So I'm curious in terms of um, uh, you mentioned 2020 uh, and Sherry Beasley outperformed the Senate race from a democratic standpoint, Biden as well. Now this race, that was super close. This to be super close. We're not talking like changes of like five, 10, 15%, but You know, what do you think will be different this time when you think about, you know, whether that's turnout, uh, you know, how swing voters behave to allow her to get your win number, basically? Uh, And again, we're not talking about a massive difference between 2020 performance and 2022. But how if you think about that? A lot of ingredients to it. But what gives you confidence?
3: Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think there's a big the big piece here is not taking any votes for granted. Right. Like choice is a singular issue that we're, that I think resonates with a lot of people across the board. But, you know, look, this is the first time that there's been an African-American candidate at the top of the ticket in this state in a long time since since your former boss uh, was running. Right. Um, and she's certainly the first black woman that's ever had the opportunity to carry a major party, major party banner. Um, and we have spent a lot of time. Energy resources, both in paid communications, but also in sort of grassroots campaigning, um, making sure that we're we're touching the African American community and making sure that we're sort of energizing our base uh, to turn out for us. And if you go back and you look at some of these races, um, you know we have a real opportunity to to overperform in that community and help drive turnout. Um, and it's simple math, right? Um, if we if we get a larger share uh, of black voters, then we we need less of sort of those white non-college educated voters that have been leaving the party. Um, And, you know, look, look just back at um, 2020, you had roughly 19 and a half percent. We're hoping around 20 percent at a a bare minimum uh, with Sherry Beasley running. But even in 2014, even um, when Senator Hagan lost her reelect and what was a very, very, very difficult um, midterm election cycle, the state still reached 21% turnout with black voters. So, you know, 20% is something that we're aiming for, but it's also something that we're hoping we can far exceed. You can exceed, right? Yeah. And, right. and that's why we're also, and again, going back, yes, there are large shares of the African-American uh, population in uh, big counties, but also in the rural parts of the state, right? We were um, we were out west. We're going to be down east this coming week and um, uh, not just Cumberland County outside of Fayetteville, but um, we spent a fair amount of time in Union and Anson counties, um, and we're going to be over in Pitt County pretty soon here, too. And so I think spending time in these small rural communities that often get overlooked has um, been really, really helpful.
1: Well, it's also important because the Republicans have shown some ability uh, to add to their vote share amongst uh, rural black men. If My recollection is, you know, in 2020, you saw a little bit of that in the Trump race in North Carolina. Are you seeing uh, concerted efforts by Bud or any of his outside groups to work that cohort? And are you worried about them, you know, even if you get turnout 2021 20, 22 percent statewide, that they may increase their vote
3: share? No, I mean, look, concerned. No. Am, is it is it a driver of how we approach this race? Absolutely. Yeah. So, right, you know, yeah. like basically what we have seen is that, you know, they are trying to peel these folks off. We've done a ton of. Uh, in terms of making sure that we're not only like meeting with, you know, local community leaders, but um, our organizing program has a faith based element to it. Um, we are at church every Sunday. Uh, we're meeting with clergy. Um, we're meeting with D9 groups across the state. We are not taking it for granted. Um, and our polling data picks up the same thing that people are seeing across the country. Um, but we, we also know in the same way, um, if we can make sure that we're driving our message, if we make sure that we're spending time in these communities, Um, that they do come over to us. And so uh, we call it not just mobilize, but persuade to mobilize. We know we need to also get in there and do the hard work of making sure that people know why they should vote for Sherry Beasley. Um, But that's where we do believe if we we do that hard work, which we have been doing for the last year and we're going to continue to do, um, that we should be just fine. Um, Just fine.
1: Well, glad you're not taking it for granted. I think that the Republicans see great promise there. I I hope it's not – uh, rewarded promise, but it's something we as a party have to, to monitor. So I'm curious, Travis, you know, something I certainly struggled with back when I was running races was, you know, people have to remember, particularly like, you know, this is a a marquee dead heat U S Senate race. I mean, it is marathon at sprint at sprint pace, right? Uh, you can see the goal line and obviously you've got organizers out there, uh, you know, working their tails off. We'll talk about early vote in, in a minute. Um, you know, you have debates, but, you know, how do you – one of the things I always struggle with is how do you, like, those last three weeks, you know, still hit your high mark? You know, you're dominating the exchange with your opponent. You're creating a lot of energy, right? I mean, you know, because, you know, I think we've seen – I thought this was somewhat of the issue in 16 in the Clinton-Trump race. A lot of things there, James Comey, at the top of the list, obviously. But, you know, I think after that last debate, you know, there was a long 20 days, if I remember. And I think, you know, they they sort of – uh you know, limp to the finish line compared to Trump. So how do you keep that energy up? How do you close strong?
3: No, I, it's a great question. And we're actually kind of in that spot right now. Um, unfortunately, right. um despite our best efforts, we were only able to pin our opponent down for one debate, which was on October seventh. right. Um, so we are we are sort of through that last piece of it. Um and we're very excited. I think because we only got the one debate, what we decided to do was sit down and map out. Um, the the places that the debate was not able to touch and make sure that we went and visited those communities. And so um, the debate was unfortunately not statewide. Uh, We challenged our opponent and accepted a statewide free public broadcasting debate. Um, He did not accept. Um, And so we're going to these places where the debate didn't touch and doing town hall style forums. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we are really going to be running an aggressive roadshow for the final four weeks, um, getting out across um, not just doing sort of we call them conversations with Sherry, um, yeah. but, um, not just town hall forum style events, but also visiting small businesses, visiting farms, um, visiting barbershops, um, having clergy meetings, these types of things. We're going to really try and keep the foot on the gas and, and do a barnstorm of the state. Um, you know, so much of it, uh, not just because it's the, r- the right thing to do, but so that we know we gave it everything here at the end. Um, and look, I, that's the way we've run it the whole way. Um, like, I, I think a, a lot of people don't realize this about North Carolina, but it's a Trump state. Um, in fact, we're, right. we're sort of the only Trump state on the board with major outside investment. Um, and so we are trying to make sure that we, we, we keep, keep running a race that will continue to sort of make North Carolinians proud, but also garner some of that outside help uh, yeah. that we need to get across the finish line in a cycle like this.
1: Right. So let's talk about early vote. You know, I think a lot of listeners probably now have followed at least through the presidential races, in North Carolina enough to know a lot of vote comes in early. So talk about how you guys have prepared for that. What are you seeing in any of the early data? And just, you know, as a campaign manager, obviously, that's a big, you know, a big focus, obviously, in terms of the candidate schedule, your allocation of resources, etc.,
3: yeah, I mean, again, a lot of these pieces are, are, are designed to be GOTV rallies by nature. Right. Um, we were in Charlotte on Saturday uh, with Senator Booker. He came in and gave us a lot of his time. We're very grateful. Um, we, uh, we we hit a, an AKA meeting, uh, which is a D9 sorority, which mm-hmm. Sherry's a member of, hit a barbershop. Um, and then we had a rally uh, at a local high school uh, that had about 500 people at it. Um, and then next yesterday actually uh, gosh the days are blurring together um we were in unc uh in chapel hill senator ossoff came in and we were able to do um a sort of voter rally with with college voters that had about 400 people at it and so you know these are all programs that are designed to sort of turn you know gin up enthusiasm um as it relates to sort of the numbers we're seeing now um north carolina is interesting um it has a republican general assembly um who controls a lot of sort of how the election laws work here um, so we can actually see when people return ballots, yeah. um, but we can't see when people request them, which is a very new thing that is that is unique to this election cycle. So that's been a fun game that we. That's have That's pretty to play. shitty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it makes it it makes it hard to track. Um, and to your point, uh, early vote is uh, really important. It's October 20th to November fifth here. It right. is a huge chunk of the ball game. Um, and so the, both of those the reason I bring up those two GOTV rallies is they were really designed uh, and very focused on making sure that we get people out to vote this Thursday. Uh, first day you can go early vote. Um, my candidate's going to be voting on the first day. My, me and my entire team are going to walk over and vote together. It's going to be a good time. Um, but we're, we're very, very focused on that. And then, of course, your traditional souls to the polls operations and things like right. that. There's a couple Sundays in there.
1: And so between uh, mail and and an in-person early vote, what percentage of the vote will come
3: in uh, prior to Election Day? That's a great question. Yeah. Um, it, it varies pretty heavily right. um, year uh, to year. On election, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, and candidly, because of the new absentee, uh, a lot of people obviously voted absentee in 2020, which yeah. really sort of sh- skews the statistics. Yeah. Um, but a majority share of our voters are going to yeah. vote um, during early vote. Um, and again, going back to some of the things we're messaging on, like choice, it's it's why it's important to not let off the, the pedal because a lot of those independents and Republican-leaning voters are still going to vote on election day. And of course, some of our folks too. Um But the the turnout operation for our, our team and for turning out and mobilizing Dems is certainly going to be during early vote.
1: Right. All right. Well, listen, Travis, thanks for your time today. Thanks for your leadership in this campaign and the other campaigns that you've worked on and led. Uh, You guys are obviously uh, right there, as you said, Uh, you know, and it is a race that's you know, and I think in part because Bud is kind of, you know, uh, in a fetal position and doesn't want to be out there. It's not getting the attention that some of these other races are, but it's just as close as they are. So, uh, you know, good luck bringing this across the finish line here in these closing weeks.
3: No, I, I really appreciate I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the campaign and elevate our race. And uh, for folks listening, um, I, you know, don't think it's too late to come give us a hand. Um, late help is always more impactful than you realize, whether it's, it's time or money, um, we could use it. So thank you for giving us a space to talk about it. No, thanks
1: for that call-out. I mean, just as you talk about the race, there's a bunch of voters who haven't decided who to vote for, there's a bunch of voters that might uh, not have decided if they're gonna vote, right? And you know, they gotta be reached out to. Uh, and, and television and digital ads are great, but they're not still not as effective as that human contact. So thanks for reminding people they still have an important part to play. Um, thanks, Travis. Thank you, David.